We have a special treat today, uh, church, and uh, for all the people who are called to the business mountain and to the nonprofit sector, uh, this is a real treat. Uh, our guest speaker today he graduated from UVA, University of Virginia, uh, with a double major in management information systems and religious studies, and he also went on to get his master's in international cooperation and development at Youngstown University. Um, He's worked uh, in New York City at Price Waterhouse Coopers, at Deloitte Consulting, IBM Consulting. So he's a lot of uh, different business experiences under his belt. Uh, he is the founder of the 5-2 Foundation, uh, founder and executive director. And uh, he'll be sharing a little bit today uh, with uh, what his organization does. If you guys check out our online support site uh, and where we are continuing raising money for our support staff and our missions trips, uh, that platform was developed by his company, for, by his nonprofit, 5-2 Foundation. Uh, to me, he's just my friend uh, and my accountability partner. And uh, it is such an honor to, uh, and, a, and a privilege to have him here today. Uh, he also serves as an elder at Jubilee Church, uh, English ministry uh, down in Shinsa in Gangnam. Uh, so without further ado, he also has a beautiful wife, Heather, yeah. and a beautiful baby, Jacob. And uh, Alex used to worship right here when Pastor David used to be the lead pastor of JSCM. Uh, he used to come out and worship here every single week. So I think it's been a long time since he's been back in the sanctuary. And so I think it's a real treat for him to be here. And uh, let's put our hands together. Welcome, Alex Lim. Morning, church. Morning. Wow, I really haven't been back here. Um, I think I came about three years ago for, if you guys remember the ERISA fund, uh, we raised money for that. But I really haven't been back here to worship. I think it's been almost seven years. So it's just a blessing. So many memories. Heather and I started dating here, so. Uh, I wish she could be here, but she's. Uh, Jacob's nap time, so I think they're in the nursery right now. Um, but if you could start the slideshow. So I want to talk today about work. I know you didn't come Sunday to hear about work, but um, that's what we're going to do today. But before that, I want to tell you a little bit about myself, about 5T Foundation, and then we'll get on to the more important stuff about getting into God's Word. Okay. Um, just real quickly, like I said, uh, next slide, please. Heather, this is Heather. And Jacob. <laughs> What's so funny? <laughs> okay, um, and next slide. And this is our soon-to-be daughter. <laughs> we don't have a name. You know, Jacob's name was actually really easy to come up with because um, it took us a long time to get pregnant. So we named him after someone who would fight for God's blessing, right? Um, but the daughter, the name we kept getting was Abundance because we got pregnant with her right away. So this was supposed to be a year of God's abundance. But the only biblical name for abundance is Jethro. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know what father... Are there any Jethros in here? I don't, I, don't, okay, I don't know what father would name their daughter Jethro. <laughs> I mean, you could try to like feminize it and go with like Jethra or Jethroel. I don't know. But... Uh, 
So we're still trying to think of a name, something along the lines of abundance. <laughs> okay, next slide. Okay. So I grew up in Virginia, um, not too far from Philly. Now it's RG3 land for those, all those Redskins fans. And I had a very normal childhood. I grew up in the church, um, good parents, good friends. Um, but after I started working consulting about six, seven years, I realized that I just wasn't happy. I had a good life, but it wasn't a great life. So I had what's called a quarter-life crisis. You know, the midlife crisis, that's kind of a, gone these days. Now everyone goes with the quarter-life crisis. And I became very disillusioned with work. Um, nothing was wrong, but I had this fear that I was 27. I would soon be 60 or 70, look back, and the next 30, 40 years of my life would be the same. My life was already set. You know, I had a job. I was in a long-term relationship. Um, I bought a house, supporting my parents like any good Asian you know, son was supposed to do. And my life was pretty, pretty much set. But if I didn't change something at that time, I knew that um, the next 30, 40 years would be exactly the same. Okay. So I did something very uncharacteristic, and I dropped everything. It's very unlike me for friends that know me. And I just left. Um, I had so many points because I was flying every week, staying in hotels. I just quit my job, you know, sold everything. And I told everyone I was just leaving. And uh, I got around the around-the-world ticket for one year. I didn't know where I was going, but I just traveled. I just backpacked to 17 countries. And Korea was one of those places. And that really changed, um, really, my life. So after I finished uh, traveling, I felt this pull to come back to Korea, because Korea was where I recommitted myself to God. And I felt this, thank you, I felt this call to come back to Korea. I... Um, <clears throat> went to graduate school at, at Yonsei thinking because I didn't, you know, I thought the job was a problem. I didn't have this fulfilling job. I thought that was a problem. But um, so I thought I would come back, get a, a master's degree in international development. And my thought was I would work for a Christian nonprofit because that seemed kind of the holy thing to do. I could use technology for, you know, helping orphans and, you know, doing Christian development, social justice. So I was very idealistic when I first came. I actually met Christian here when I first came. We're sitting right here at Newcomers, seven years ago. We, I guess we came back the, the same week, actually. Um, so after a series of events, you know, I, I, I graduated, and we ended up starting uh, 5-2 Foundation. Instead of going to you know, World Vision or something, um, things just happened. Marriage was one of those things. And we started the 5-2 Foundation thinking that we would be the social justice arm of the church. So we thought that um, because the church is, equipped, is called to make disciples, that's really our mandate, right? The church is called to make disciples. But we needed a nonprofit, a wing of the church, to actually execute the social justice. So that's what we thought 5-2 was supposed to be. Um, so for our first project, we started uh, raising money to dig wells in Orissa, India. There was so much persecution there. Um, at that time, and you know, we raised $30,000. New Philly was the largest donor. Thank you, guys. And um, you know, it was a successful campaign in a lot of ways, but we ran into some issues with our partner. And we had to find a new partner, and it made us kind of rethink what we were called to do. Now, at the same time, um, I met so many missionaries while in Korea. So many missionaries come, and they travel through Korea. Uh, and I would always ask them one question. I was like, what is your biggest obstacle? And then the next question was, well, how can we help? And almost always they would say either prayer or they would say funding. 
right? We need help with funding. And I realized that instead of raising funds for our project, what we really should have been doing was to help other people raise funds for their projects, right? Instead of raising $30,000 for us to do our project, if we had a platform, we could enable 10, 100 other organizations to each raise $30,000. So that, that was our heart. So we built Grassroot. You guys are using this right now. And it's a missions fundraising platform. Okay, it's very simple. And our vision is to multiply God's resources for the common good. Okay, that's our vision. To multiply God's resources for the common good. Okay, next slide. So instead of telling you what this means, let me just show you. Uh, this is the, a slide of what we thought we would be. This is what I call the portal. So you see the 5-2 is at the top. Projects at the bottom, projects that we own and we run. Um, so we thought this is what we were supposed to be. Next slide. But we actually became this. And everything looks exactly the same except for one big difference. It's flipped. It's called flipping the funnel sometimes. Um, and so instead of us being a portal at the top, we decided to build a platform where 5.2 is actually at the bottom. So we just enable our clients to do what they do, fundraise for their projects. So what does this mean? It means that we just provide the technology and we just get out of the way, right? We don't own the projects. We actually don't even process the money. That goes straight to your account. We, the donors don't even know about 5.2, right? So we want you guys to manage and run and take ownership of your projects. Now, technically, it's a lot easier to build version 1 than version 2. If there's any programmers in here, you, you'll, you'll know why. It's a lot easier to build the portal, because with the platform, you really don't know how it's going to be used, right? But that's actually the beauty of a platform. It's to let go of control and allow people to use their creativity and their calling to you know, really take ownership of what God has called them to be, what God has called them to do, okay? So the best way to explain this, I wanted to just show you some of the projects that have been created using our platform. Okay, next slide. Okay, this is Jubilink. This is our, um, my home church. And we've raised in the last two years 600 million won, which is about $550,000, all for missions. Right, this is all for missions. Next slide. So one of the projects um, on our page is Ryan and Carolyn. They're missionaries in, um, so- oh, I shouldn't say, it's Southeast Asia. Um, <laughs> and they're with Food for the Hungry. So they support Rays using our site. Next slide. Everyone knows New Philly support. <laughs> so here's an example of a fundraising page. Okay. You guys have raised in two years, a little under two years, $400,000. Right? That's for missions, short-term trips, support staff. Right? Um, you guys are actually one of our most active users right, on a day-to-day basis. Next. Okay. <laughs> like, this good-looking guy is raising support. I think this was for one of his um, trips. So you can also do personal support letters, not just project pages, but personal support letters. Okay, next. Okay, uh, this is New Song, actually. Pastor Gibbons was here recently. So New Song raised $100,000 in the last two months for a building campaign. Okay, so they're moving into a new building very soon. Okay, Next. Christian Friends of Korea, um, they do work in North Korea. This is a greenhouse project so that North Koreans can have sustainable food. Okay, next. 
New Harvest, one of my friend's churches. Um, this is a short-term trip. Next. This is Ride Against Traffic. Some of you went on this. So this is Pastor Dehong was leading this. They were uh, riding from here to Busan. They raised, I um, can't see exactly here. I think they raised about $10,000 eventually. Okay, next. Uh, this is Total Ideas. They raised money for a symposium to invite Chinese house church leaders to the states for training. Okay, so they had a, this recently happened. Next. Uh, CBI is one of our partners. They have a seminary in, um, in Japan. This is one of their support letters for one of their missionary staff. Living Water Berkeley. I think they came and spoke here. Um, a new one that they just started, trying to raise $3,000 uh, for digging wells to feed, I think, 2,000 people with water. Okay? Next. Uh, this is... WHC, Women's Hope Center, there's a crisis pregnancy center for Korean women who don't want to get an abortion. So they come to this center to actually have the baby. So they offer counseling, adoption services. It's really amazing. I think some of you here are involved with this. One of our newest projects. Okay, next. Okay, so when you provide a platform, um, you'll never know how God is going to use it. So if we went with the first model, there's no way we would have come up with Ride against traffic, or there's no way we would have created a women's crisis pregnancy center. That's not in our DNA. We would have never done, done that. Right? The other benefit, I think, is the financial return. Our budget for 5-2 is about sixty to $65,000 a year. That's for two full-time staff where we're support raising. But our clients have used Grassroots to raise over $4 million in the last two years. Okay? So that's the kind of return that we're offering. That's hundreds of projects, hundreds of short-term missionaries from thousands of donors. Now, to do any of this, we need your support. Um, You know, Matt and I, he's my partner, Matt, Suhaki, and I, we live off support. And, you know, fundraising hasn't been easy. I've never done it before. I've never went through those courses on how to fundraise. And um, I really know what missionaries mean when they say fundraising is the hardest part of ministry. Right? They think about it day in and day out. They travel to fundraise. They have meetings about fundraising. They go to conferences to fundraise. Um, it really does take a lot of time and energy. And part of me initially thought that you know, we just need maybe one wealthy donor. $60,000 is not that much money. You, know, you always hear these stories about like a millionaire cutting a check, $100,000 to a nonprofit. We really thought maybe that would happen from a couple wealthy donors, but it, it's never happened for us. Instead, we've gotten many different donors to give a little bit at a time. And it's been so humbling and so encouraging. Um, And we've learned a lot throughout this process because I think if we got that money early on, we wouldn't have known what our customers, our clients are going through, right? Now we get to empathize and really see what a missionary does day to day, okay? So there's three things that um, you guys can help us with. The first is we need monthly supporters, Okay, they're really the backbone of our organization. So there's a support page now at um, uh, New Philly Support. There's a project page for 5-2. And it's true that when you give to 5-2, it doesn't go directly to build, building orphanages or digging wells. But what we do is we turn that donation and multiply it so that other people can do those things. Okay? So that's, that's our vision. Now, this is kind of bold, but um, 
Our goal next year is to raise 20, help our clients to raise $20 million. So we think if we can get at least 100 clients, we can actually reach $20 million for missions. Okay, that's our goal. Um, number two is we really need you to get the word out about 5-2. We're going to do our launch at Urbana end of this year. So until now, it's been just kind of invite only through friends, people I know. But now we're going to do a full public beta launch. So we need you to get the word out. I have these name cards. You guys can hand it out to your pastor friends, missionaries in the States, your home church in the States. You can let them know. Um, so that's the second thing. The third thing is we need prayer partners. Right? Like I said, we're going to Urbana, so we need people to really pray, especially for that conference. Okay, we're going to try to get volunteers, student volunteers, to come work with us. Um, but also try to network with other organizations. Okay? So we need prayer warriors um, that will really support us. Okay, uh, next slide. Okay, so that's enough about 5-2. The reason I really wanted to come is to share with you about work. So it's something I've been learning, I think, for the past um, maybe two years or so, just reading a lot. God's been really showing me a lot about what work is. Personally, going through this with 5-2, is 5-2 a for-profit, a non-profit? Is it a ministry? Is it a business? So I've been tackling a lot of these issues. Um, so to give you a context, if this were a sermon series, a hypothetical series, like if I had four weeks to preach here, the first sermon would actually be about rest, not about work. Okay? I think you guys learn a lot about this here. Um, because resting in God comes first. Right? Your being comes before your doing. Okay? So this is gospel rest to be secure in your identity as sons and daughters. Okay, that comes first. The second sermon would be about our primary calling, which is already revealed in the Bible. There's no guessing. There's no discerning. It's just the, God tells you in his word what to do. It's to seek the kingdom first. Right? That's the primary will for God in your life. Now, sermon three would be about vocation, which is what I'm going to be talking about today. Okay, this is your actually secondary calling, your vocation. And sermon four would be about how to discern calling. And I think this is where we spend most of our time, especially as singles. Who do I marry? What job do I, do I get? What's my calling? Those are the two questions that everyone's asking. But what I find is if you know gospel rest, and if you know your primary calling, and if you know the value of work, the value of vocation, the, the discernment actually falls into place. That's actually the last thing you should be worried about. So today I'm going to be talking about um, Sermon 3, about vocation and the value of work. Okay, So let's get started. Um, what's wrong with work? Okay, What's wrong with work? Now there's a saying that no one on your deathbed ever says, I wish I could have worked more. <laughs> right? I'm sure I've said this before. I've heard this from the pulpit a lot of times. No one ever says, I wish I could have worked more. Because... We're taught that life is all about relationships. That's what really matters. Now, these things are good, um, but the idea that work isn't as important is simply unbiblical. Right? The idea that work isn't as important is unbiblical. So somewhere along the way, I think we lost this biblical doctrine of work. Okay? We know that the world abuses work, but I don't think Christians are actually any better. And instead of defending our doctrine of work and fighting this battle head-on, I think we've acclimated our theology to our culture. 
And the proof is easy. The average Christian in the workplace is almost identical to the non-Christian. Christians, you know, we may evangelize, we may pray before meals, but our view of work is almost the same. Because the modern view is that work is a means to an end. So you could say that you know, non-Christians, they might work for power, for money, to buy nice things. But if as a Christian, you're working just to give your money to the poor, to tithe to the church, to do good things with your money, then you're actually in the exact same boat. You're all using money as a means. You're all using work as a means to something else. Okay? And the Bible says that the work itself is the thing. Right? There's value not just in what work produces, but in the work itself. It's not about the result. There's value in the work itself. And most adults, you know, we're going to spend about half of our waking lives working. And I just don't see God using half of our life as a means to an end. Right? Now, Dorothy Sayers, she wrote an important essay after World War II called Why Work? Has anyone ever read this? Um, okay, you guys can Google it, and it's really long, but it's, it's really good. Let me just re, uh, read an excerpt. In it, she places much of the blame of war. Think about World War II, how immense that was. She's placing the blame of war on our wrong view of work. Okay, it's quite a, quite a statement. Okay, she says this. Never think that wars are irrational catastrophes. They happen when wrong ways of thinking and living bring about intolerable situations. And one of the false ideas we had about economics was a false attitude both to work and to the good produced by work. Now, what's more, she places the blame of this wrong thinking on the church. On the church. She says, In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. The church has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends. Let me read that again. The church has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends. Okay? Now, that's what Dorothy Sayers, as a writer, is saying about work. But, you know, maybe she's just, I don't know, being, you know, using hyperbole as a writer. Um, can a wrong view of work actually cause wars? Can a wrong view of work actually cause wars? Now, we have to turn to the source of all truth, so let's get into the word. And what the Bible says is that everyone works. Everyone works. Most of the heroes in the Bible had what we call secular vocations. Let me read this list. Isaac was in real estate. Jacob was a rancher. Joseph was in government. Moses spent 40 years as a sheep herder. Esther was a beauty queen. (laughs) David was a farmer. Then he became a king. Daniel was an immigrant who became prime minister. Lydia was a businesswoman in textiles. And Paul was a tent maker, right? Alongside missionary, he was a tent maker. He literally made tents. So the Bible is a book written by workers, about workers, and for workers. So I want to present today four lessons from the Word. We're going to take a sweeping look through God's Word. Okay, lesson one. Next slide, please. 
Work is good. Okay, lesson one. Work is good. Uh, okay. <laughs> Genesis 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, and on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And we know that work is good because God works, right? God works, so we know that work is good. Now, when we think of work, I think most of us think of Genesis 3. We start with Genesis 3. What is Genesis 3? It's the fall, right? So we think of the curse of work, the toil and the labor of work. That's the way we're taught to think about work is starting in Genesis 3. But we have to rewind to Genesis 1 and 2, right? So work actually comes before the fall. In paradise, work comes before the fall. So God is a creator, and because we're made in his image, we're also creators. He designs and he shapes. He turns chaos into order, and he gives purpose to his creation, and we actually have the same gift. Now, we should know that we don't create in the same way that God creates. Tolkien um, has a word that I really like. He uses the word sub-creation. So we don't create, we actually sub-create. So we create out of the things that God has already given us. Okay, so we sub-create. Now, we have this amazing ability to create things, even people. I mean, like I said, Heather and I, we um, took us a couple years to get pregnant. It was a really difficult time. But this gift to create people, you just take it for granted until it doesn't happen. Every married couple just assumes that when they start trying, you know, you're going to pop out a baby right away. It just doesn't work that way. And I think looking back, I realized that, uh, I realized that one of the reasons I felt empty in my consulting job was because I didn't think consulting was good work. I just thought it was a job. You know, helping the poor, that might be sacred, but um, I was helping clients save a few million dollars by building software to fix one of their problems. Now, how is saving a couple million dollars for a billion-dollar company doing any good? That's the way I was thinking. Okay. But if I had a biblical understanding about work, I really believe that I could have lived out my calling in Virginia being the best consultant that I could be. I really believe that. I don't think 5-2 was the only thing that I was called to be. That's kind of shocking to think if I had the right understanding about work. Okay? But in God's sovereignty, at the time, I was actually really selfish and immature. I was seeking personal fulfillment more than anything else. Okay? So in God's sovereignty, I came to Korea in 5-2, and now I'm standing here. What's ironic is that although I was running from God in this way, I'm actually doing the same thing that I was doing before, something very similar. <laughs> and I'm learning now that 5-2 is actually no more holy than what I was doing before. 5-2 is no more holy than consulting. Okay? So lesson two is work is not about you. Okay? Work is not, this is not just work, but life is not primarily about you. Okay? So turn to the person next to you and say, life is not about you. So you guys love saying this to see spouses, they love saying this to each other. <laughs> now, this seems so obvious, right? That life is not about us. But our frame of reference, I think, is naturally selfish. And no one really thinks that, you know, would be bold enough to say, yeah, life is all about me. But if we're really honest with ourselves, and I think you'll find that we just kind of learn to hide our self-centeredness. We disguise it with subtleties and especially religion. Okay, so our, 
the primary biblical word, this habit that we have to place ourselves at the center is called idolatry. Okay, it's placing anything other than God at the center. You know, I remember reading uh, Purpose Driven Life when I was traveling around the world, and the first chapter just struck out at me. It says, life is not about you. Right? And I don't know why it was so refreshing to hear that, <laughs> just to hear it in that way. Even the work we do for God, actually, especially the work we do for God, it's often selfish. Right? It's so deeply ingrained in our language, in our way of thinking, I find it almost impossible not to be self-centered. Um, you know, when I read the Bible, the first thing I always ask is, you know, what is God trying to show me through this verse? And it seems like such a holy question, like a holy prayer. And I have to stop myself because I find that maybe God's not trying to tell me anything about me. Right? Have you ever thought that maybe God's not, that verse or that chapter is not really about you? Right? I mean, God speaks through the Bible more than through anything else, but um, we have to remember that the Bible is God's word. It's his story, and he's the main character. But even when we read the Bible, we're at the center. We always have to ask the application question before we get to God revealing himself. Right? And we do this all the time. I find myself doing this every day. Right? So we're naturally self-centered. And the self-focus that we have, it has a direct effect in the way we think about work, right? Because I think we have this idea in our mind that there's a perfect job for me, right? So if I look just hard enough, try enough different jobs, I'll find this perfect one job that fits my soul, the way a key would fit a lock, right? <laughs> and you think that all of your gifts and your deepest passions, they're going to somehow cosmically come together, and you're going to find this one job that, that just gives, you, gives your life meaning, right? Now, many of us who are maybe a little bit older, I think we lost this romantic view of work because we've tried it. We've tried several jobs. And, and any job that doesn't feel perfect, it just doesn't feel right. Um, so let me say this. Personal fulfillment is not the goal of life. Okay? Personal fulfillment is not the goal of life. Contrary to everything that the world tells us, fulfillment is a result of seeking the kingdom of God first. Fulfillment is a result. Right? It's a result of placing God at the center. One of the most commonly used words in the Bible to describe God is the Hebrew word kabod. It's translated as glory, but it literally means weight, weightiness, or gravity, this heaviness. Because God has this gravity that we can't compete against. So when we, in our thoughts and actions, intentional or not, by placing ourselves at the center, we're like a speck of dust asking the sun to orbit around us. Right? And the laws of nature just don't work that way. Right? We're, we weren't built to place ourselves at the center. center. So our p- problem with vocation is that we're going about it the wrong way, with ourselves at the center. Right? And we do it whether we realize it or not. We think too small about work because our view of God is so small. Right? So personal fulfillment, if that's not the goal of work, then what is the goal of work? Okay, next. Work is for the common good. Okay, work is for the common good. Let's unpack this a little bit. Now, if the purpose of work is to love our neighbor, and it's not just believers, it's actually to love all people, In other words, work is for the common good. 
Now I want to take a look at Daniel. Let me give you a short background about the life of Daniel. Daniel was a chief political advisor to three pagan tyrants. So imagine Daniel trying to work out his calling. Right? On the one hand, he wants to remain faithful to God, but he's also being called to serve his enemy. Right? In 539, the Persian king Cyrus, he's a Persian, he captured Babylon, and to everyone's surprise, he freed the Jews. He sent all the Jews home, and he even allowed them to rebuild the temple. Right? But guess who was prime minister during that transition of power from Babylon to Persia? It was Daniel. Daniel was in the right place at the right time. Okay? Now, in the middle of Daniel, he reads from Jeremiah's letter. Okay, it is Jeremiah 29, verse 4. So this is actually God's instruction to his people living in exile, spoken through Jeremiah. And Daniel was reading from the scroll because it was prophesied that they would be, the Jews would be captive for 70 years. And Daniel knew that they were getting close to that time. It was 60-some years. So I think he was reading the scroll to try to see, get encouragement from God, to return to God's word. And he's reading out of Jeremiah 29, and it says this. Build houses. Remember, this is God's instruction for the people living in exile, right? Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, it might be shocking to find that God is telling his people to seek the prosperity of their enemies. But that's exactly what he's doing here. He wasn't telling them just to play the part, just ride it out, and then I'm going to deliver you. He was saying, love your neighbor now. Invest in the city, and it will prosper you. See, we can't predict how our work will affect the world. Right? That's not our job. God is just calling us to love, and the way we love is primarily by working. Like Daniel, we're told to love our enemies, and the way we love is by serving them through work. Okay? Now, because all work is sacred and because work is common to all, all work is a service for the common good. I don't think anyone would disagree with the fact that Christians are called to love. Right? We all know the Good Samaritan you know, story. We're all called to love even our enemies. I don't think we could disagree with that. Okay? But what about unbelievers? What do you think about unbelievers and their work? Okay? Is their work sacred? Is the work of unbelievers sacred? Now, I raise this point because as Christians, I think we're so quick to judge, to separate the secular right, from the sacred. Now, this story goes back to lesson two because I think our view of God is so small that we limit God to blessing only Christians. Right? So where do unbelievers fit into God's story? Now, if we go back to Daniel again, in Isaiah 45, it says that Cyrus is called the anointed one. He's anointed with the spirit. Right? And God, think about this. God is saying this about a pagan king. God is anointing a pagan king, saying he's anointed. Anointed is the same word for Messiah, by the way. Right? He's not saying he is the Messiah, but it's, it, that's how heavy that word is, anointed. So God is using both Daniel, the Jew, and Cyrus, the pagan, to free his people. 
right, and to rebuild the temple. Both are fulfilling their calling. Now, the implication is that even non-believers can engage in sacred work. Now, this should give us, I think, a humility about our work as Christians and how we treat others, especially non-believers. Because remember that all of us were at one time unbelievers too. So it took the love of a believer to bring us into the family. So do you ever wonder why non-Christians, when you look around, why they're prospering so much? They're driving nice cars and they seem very happy and healthy. And I just have one simple answer. It's just because God is good, right? God is so good that his grace pours out to even his enemies, right? This is what's called common grace. This is common grace. Christians don't have a monopoly on grace, right? We behave as we do, and this is the attitude that we have. But Christians do not have a monopoly on grace. Matthew 5 says, The sun rises and the rain falls on the righteous and unrighteous. Isaiah 28 says, The farmer learns from God whether he knows it or not. God is teaching the farmer. Okay. Now, Bach, um, he wrote at the end of his... Uh, masterpiece. Every, every, all the pieces of music he wrote, he would write at the end, for the glory of God. I think some of you heard this. Now, Mozart, he never wrote that. They had a very different life. But can you say that Bach's music is more sacred than Mozart's music? Right? Can you say that Bach's music is more sacred? See, we don't have to be concerned about labeling people good or bad, or their work good or bad. Because God is orchestrating the world through work. He's blessing the world through work. There's a saying, I think it was Milton Friedman that once said this, as an economist. He said, it takes 1,000 people to make one pencil. Does anyone have a normal pencil, like a graphite normal pencil? Everyone using phones. <laughs> no one even has a pen. No one has a normal pencil? Oh, normal pencil. Okay. Now, if you look at that pencil, hold it up high. Okay, I think that's a normal pencil. There's four industries represented there. There's graphite, wood, right? Steel and rubber. Is there a steel at that little tip holding the rubber? No. Okay, you have three industries then. <laughs> most, most pencils have a rubber at the end and a little steel or aluminum that holds it. Okay, that's four industries. Think about the global coordination required to make one pencil. Now, they actually say there's actually no one that can actually, can, that can actually make a pencil. Right? You would have to cut the wood yourself. How do you shape the graphite, grind it down? How, do you, how would you ever do that? Form the aluminum yourself? Right? It's all interconnected. Think about what it takes to make one pencil. Now, imagine this pencil being used to write the next masterpiece or being used by the next Da Vinci. Right? But is the lumberjack's work that cut down that tree to make that pencil any less holy than da Vinci's work? So when you leave here today, you have to look around and you have to think about this. Think about how the world is serving each other through work, Christian and non-Christian. Think about the taxi drivers, the lawyers, the accountants, the waiters, rich people, poor people. We're all in the service industry, right? We're all in the service industry. And without being cynical, we have to marvel at how God is showing grace to everyone. Now, we have no idea how God will use anyone's work for his glory. But our hope 
is that they will see the giver of all good gifts. And that's what we're called to do as Christians, is to point people to the giver more than the gift. That all good things will point to God. And God will get the glory one day, no matter what, one way or, or another. Or he will get the glory. Our job is not to judge people, right? So lesson four. This is the hard one to swallow. Work is eternal. <laughs> Work is eternal. Now, another major reason we don't value work is because we don't have the right eschatology. Okay? That just means that we don't know the ending to the story, so we don't know what to look forward to, and we don't know how to get there. Yeah. We just don't know the ending. One author says this, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Yeah. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Right, this eschatology. Now, in Revelation 21, um, let me read. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So how do you picture heaven? Clouds, maybe? Um, escalators going up. <laughs> now, the Bible says in the end that heaven will actually come down. Heaven will descend. We're not going to be zapped up, actually, anywhere. Okay? God will redeem all of creation, including all the material stuff around you. Romans 8 says that creation groans with expectation. All of creation groans with expectation for this day. Now, remember in Genesis, God said that um, all creation was good, and this was pre-fall, right? So we know that the material world was good, pre-fall, material world was good. Now, if all this is true, then there's a link between what we do here on earth and the heaven that will come down. There's a continuity, okay? Now, we don't know exactly what the continuity looks like, right? That's part of our... Struggle is here and not now. One writer said this, If our daily work done for the glory of God and the common good of others in some way carries over to the new heavens and the new earth, then our present work is overflowing with immeasurable value and eternal significance. So let me ask you another question. Will you work in heaven? Is there going to be work or jobs in heaven? Now, some of you, you, you cringe. I see you moving in your seats, and you're smirking, but not really. You're like, you know, you think that you give your 30, 40 years, you collect your pension, you die, and then you have eternal retirement in heaven. I think that's, I mean, honestly, that's the way most of us would think about heaven. We just, I don't know what we, we fly around, we worship. You know, it's permanent retirement. Okay, let me ask you another question. Will you have hobbies in heaven? Okay, think about this. The first question, will you have work in heaven? That's harder to grasp, but will you have hobbies in heaven? Now, a hobby is just something you do for the pure joy of it. So I love fly fishing. So I have no problem imagining fishing all day in heaven. You know, God is good. He wants me to have fun. And I have no problem thinking, oh, yeah, there's fishing in heaven. But I have a hard time thinking there's computer programming in heaven. Right? <laughs> 
Now, in heaven, there will be no distinction between work and hobby, right? And even worship, because it's all done for the pure joy of the thing itself. You'll use whatever gifts you have to co-create with God, and it won't seem like work, at least not the work that we know. Because in heaven, in heaven everything will be holy. Yeah. I love this verse in Zechariah 14. It says, When the day of the Lord comes, even the cooking pots will be called holy to the Lord. Even the cooking pots, even pots and pans are just as holy as singing praises to God. Because in heaven, all glory will naturally flow to the one who made us for his pleasure. Now, we don't really know exactly what heaven's going to look like, and this is just my guess. I think one reason is because the Bible, the one reason that the Bible is vague about heaven is because God wants us to take part in creating it. God wants us to take part in creating it. Because we're God's children made in his image, we have this divine gift of being co-creators with God. So can you imagine this, that each one of us have the ability to create a piece of heaven here and now. You know, I said that Bach at the end of every piece wrote, God alone be the glory. And when you listen to Bach, my guess is that you might get a glimpse of heaven, especially when you hear orchestras live and you close your eyes. You might actually get a taste of what heaven is like. It's the closest thing to perfection, maybe. But the giant leap of faith is knowing and believing that we all have this ability to create heaven, right? Not just the masterpieces, not just the greatest composers. We all have this ability to usher in the kingdom wherever it is not. We have this gift to create heaven here and now, okay? Now, let me conclude. The summary of the Bible is this, love God and love others, right? That is the what. That's the what question, And all the stories in the Bible gives us principles of the how and the why. How do we love God? And how do we love others? It's pretty simple. I think we learned today that one of the primary ways to love God and love others is to work. So we went through work being good because we're made in God's image. Work is not about you because God alone deserves all the glory. Work is for the common good because God is orchestrating everyone to serve others, and work is eternal because heaven will descend and redeem all of creation. Now, all of these lessons, they ultimately point to Jesus, as with any sermon. Every sermon points to Jesus, right? Jesus is the ultimate worker. He's made in God's image, doing sacred work for the common good. The carpenter from Nazareth, he worked, and he worked well. Now, Dorothy Sayers also wrote this about Jesus. She said, No cricket table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. See, his vocation was in carpentry, but Jesus also had another job. For three years, he taught his disciples He healed the sick, he blessed the poor, and in the end, he died in service for his enemies. Right? That was his job. Jesus said this, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. 
So we always have to remember that it is the finished work of Jesus that saves. We always have to remember this. So we can rest and know that the work will never save you. It's true, the work, as important as it is, it will never save you. But we can also work out of rest, knowing that our work has value before God. We can work out of rest. There's something you realize is that no one really values work until it doesn't get done. Um, you know, if the subway is on strike, or if you don't have hot water, you realize when work doesn't happen, then that's the only time you really appreciate work. Heather and I, you know, after we had our baby, we came home. We didn't have hot water for a month. Aww. Newborn baby in an apartment. We didn't have hot water, so I had to boil water and, uh, you know, give them a bath every day. <laughs> it was actually quite, um, I don't know, something that a husband can do for the wife. It was actually something that I learned a lot from. But you don't value hot water until it's really taken from you, right? You don't value work until something doesn't, doesn't work, something doesn't go well. We take other people's work for granted. Heather and I got to go to uh, North Korea a couple years ago. And, um, you know, we did the whole tour. And, you know, they actually have churches in North Korea. So we went to a church, it's a government church. And I remember walking up the steps and, you know, along the steps there was a little boy, maybe 12. And he was sweeping, sweeping the steps, the dust, so that the guests can enter. We went in. We had a three-hour service. um, And then we came back out. Now, as we're walking out, the boy was in the exact same spot sweeping the exact same dust, right? He was just there in the exact same spot doing the exact same thing. And something you realize, something we saw in North Korea, is that when the dignity of God is stripped away from creation, you see what hell is like, right? Hell is the absence of all good things. And we take the work here that we do for granted so much, but try going to North Korea or try going to another communist country where work, you don't have the freedom to work. You don't have the dignity of work. And you see the expression on people's faces. You see the, you see the deadness in their soul, right? And it's so stark. It's such a contrast to see. And we just take it for granted here. Now, we started this journey in the garden, right, in Genesis. And we went through Daniel. And then we ended in the city in Revelation. Right? That's where we went on today. But that's the journey that all of us are on. We're all working in the garden. We're all cultivating it, sub-creating with God to turn the garden into a beautiful city. Because we're called to usher in heaven here and now by working and working with joy. Okay, So church, this is my prayer for you. My prayer is that we would recover this biblical doctrine of work. Right? We would recover this biblical doctrine of work. So let me end with a poem. Not, not my poem. <laughs> a poem by Kipling. It's called, When Earth's Last Picture is Painted. Okay, let me read this. When Earth's last picture is painted, and the tubes are twisted and dried, and the oldest colors have faded, and the youngest critic has died, we shall rest And faith, we shall need it. Lie down for an eon or two till the master of all good workmen shall put us to work anew. (laughs) 
And no one will work for the money. No one will work for the fame. But each for the joy of the working. And each in a separate star will draw the thing as he sees it, for the God of things as they are. Just let us pray.